that I am grateful to gather here with your people to have this opportunity to teach your word. God, you were gracious and kind to us to give us your word. I pray that your word would be the thing that would bring life. Because you say about your word, it is life. It is the Son of God. You say that to us in John chapter 1. You breathe life into us from your Son. I pray that the word of God would penetrate our hearts. God, that it would reveal things um, about you and about ourselves that would bring us to confession and repentance and restore unto us the joy of our salvation. I pray for us this morning, God, that you would open our minds to your truth uh, that you've given to us thousands of years ago. Let each one of us leave different than we came in, more and more like you. Be holy for I am holy, you call us to be holy. And I pray that would be true for us this morning as we dive into your great word. Lead us, guide us, and be glorified in this place. We pray this in the mighty name of Christ Jesus. Amen. If you were with us last week, you will remember that we set the stage and we set in our minds that we're in a courtroom. That God has brought His people, Adam and Eve, into the courtroom and we looked at their defense and that God brought uh, their accusations to them. They make a defense. This morning we're going to look at the verdict. And there is a verdict in this courtroom. And I'll look at three things this morning. The great curse, the great judgment, and finally the great promise. As we've been studying Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3, we'll continue on to 11. We see this theme that happens uh, in this first 11 chapters, this, this theme of sin is going to take place. That God had created man and put man in the garden and then there's sin. But here's what happens. Whenever there's sin, we see God speak. And God does never ever passively uh, sit by and watches His people sin. He will always speak into the lives of people. And so we'll see that. We'll see that man will sin, but God speaks. Not only does God speak, but God gives great grace as He speaks to us. But one that we don't like to talk about is God's great judgment. And so throughout the next couple of weeks, we'll see in the story of Cain and Abel, there's sin, God speaks, God's grace, but God's judgment, God's punishment to Cain as he uh, kills his brother. We'll see that with Noah and the flood, that God preserved all of mankind, but mankind had been wicked so much that God relented that He even created mankind. So we see the sin of man, but we see God speak into that. And we see God's great grace in that, but we also see His great punishment in that. And last, we'll look at the Tower of Babel. The people of God wanted to become like God again. And they build this tower to get to God. And God sees their sin to become like Him. And God speaks into that. And God gives grace into that. And finally, God gives punishment into that or judgment into that. But here we are with Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve had sinned against God. God had told Adam and Eve not to eat of the fruit that was in the middle of the garden. That they shouldn't eat of it because there'd become a great curse with that. And yet we see the serpent comes and he deceives Eve and Eve gives it to Adam and they eat. And then last week we looked how they hid themselves from the presence of God, but God comes down and He speaks to them and asks them, where are you or what happened to them? And then they, they get into this blame game. And Adam throws his 
wife under the bus. Adam throws God under the bus. And Eve throws uh, the serpent under the bus. And so here we are at the verdict. And finally, God finally speaks up. I want you to notice something in the passage. In verse 13, it said this, that Eve said this, the serpent deceived me and I ate. And then the Lord God said this to the serpent. Notice what He does not do to the serpent. He had asked Adam and Eve some questions. He had asked Adam and Eve some questions to be back in relationship with Adam and Eve. But here, He does not ask the serpent any questions. God wants no relationship with the evil one. And so He's going to make a declaration to the servant. He wants no relationship with the servant. He does not ask the servant anything. He just makes a declaration of judgment or of a curse to the serpent. It's interesting how God goes about the verdict. He doesn't start with Eve who ate it. He doesn't start with Adam who passively watched Eve go about it. He went right to the source. He went to the serpent first and brings judgment onto the serpent. He brings judgment, the great curse, to first the snake. That is, I, I've got to get this. That's going to distract me. Can someone come grab this frog for me? It's like the plague, Frank. I can't get it, but that is a distraction. I looked out of the corner of my eye and this thing is hopping along the way. I'm like, wow, uh, that's the first. Anyone ever had that before? Wow. All right, let's go to uh, the great, uh, let's go to the ten plagues and we'll go with the frogs. Wow. Whew. It just got hot in here all of a sudden. Wow, sorry about that. Wow. The great curse, first, God curses the snake. He doesn't curse the serpent first, He curses the animal that was uh, taken over by the serpent or by Satan. Here's how the great curse happens to the snake. You want to know why we don't like snakes? It's because of this passage, in my opinion. It says this. It says this, that God speaks to the serpent and says this, because you have done this. Look, He does not point the finger first to Adam or Eve. He points it right to the serpent. Because you have done this, because you have led my people astray because you have spoken against my people and you've caused them to do things that I called them not to do, I'm going to curse you. There is judgment coming to first the snake. Cursed are you above all the livestock and above all the beasts of the field. The first curse is this, that they shall crawl on its belly all the days of its life. Anyone want to know how come God would make the curse be that the snake would crawl on its belly? It's because of this. That the serpent had asserted itself above mankind to lead them. So now He puts the serpent as far to the ground as possible. Now we don't know if the serpent at this point had legs or not and then God takes the legs away. That's not the point of this passage. The point of this passage is God's in control brings curse that says to the serpent, you shall never have reign or dominion or power over My people again. That's the first curse. That they will walk on its belly all the days 
of its life. The second curse is this, both physical curses. And the dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Have you thought about that? Every time a snake eats, it's got to eat dust. Now, if you go throughout the passages of the Old Testament, you'll see this theme about dust in the Bible. Dust and eating of dust, God says over and over, is the greatest sign of humiliation that we see in the Old Testament. So God is bringing the serpent into humiliation because of what it allowed to take place in itself, that it allowed the Satan to enter into it. So first, the curse is to the the serpent. And then he says this in verse 15. I'm going to come back to verse 15. But now he gives the great curse to the serpent. To Satan, who's in the serpent. He says this, I will put enmity, or I'll put strife, or I'll put tension between you and the woman, and between your offsprings and her offspring. And he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his feet. The great curse is this to Satan, that Satan will be defeated. That right after the, 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 the sin in the garden, he goes to the serpent, he goes to Satan and says to Satan, you will, you are going to be defeated. That is both a promise and a curse. And you want to know why Satan's been in rebellion ever since. Because Satan, more than we know, Satan knows his destiny and he's fighting hard against the curse that was put onto him in the garden. So the curse is this, that Satan will be defeated. It tells us this in Romans chapter 16, verse 20. The God of peace will crush Satan under your feet and the grace of our Lord Jesus will be with you. Satan is defeated. Do we believe that to be true this morning, church? My great fear is we believe that to be true, but we don't live as if that's true. We live defeated rather than knowing He's the one that's been defeated. That is the promise of the curse. He is defeated. May we live our lives that way. So that's the great curse. There's only one other curse in this passage. Adam and Eve don't get curses. Do you realize that? They get judgments, but not curses. The only other curse in this passage is that the ground is going to be cursed. So the serpent is cursed, Satan is cursed, and the ground is cursed. But we, mankind, are not cursed. There's judgment that's going to come to us, but not a curse. Praise God, there's no curses on us. There is judgment, but not curses. And so God goes, and brings judgment on the woman first. He says this to the woman in verse 16. To the woman He said this, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. We see two judgments that will come upon the woman. Two relational judgment. These judgments are going to be true. The first judgment that God brings to woman is this, childbearing. And as you women know, there's great pain in childbearing. You see, until this point, there was going to be no pain with childbearing. No physical pain. 
But now because the woman was deceived by the serpent and gave her fruit to the man, God says there is going to be great relational conflict that happens between you and your children. Now, if you look at the word in the Hebrew, that word uh, about uh, conflict or the word about pain is just not about the physical pain. And as a mom, if you're a mom in here, you would probably say this. It was great physical pain at childbirth, correct? But as moms, you know there's way more pain that comes through the life of a child than just at the birth of a child. There's probably been way more tears shed over the emotional pain that's come with bearing children than even the pain itself at the moment of their birth. And God says this, there will always be pain with your children. And you moms know that more than we as fathers know that. There's something about the heart of a mom and the pain that comes when they see their child time and time again fail and struggle and fail and struggle. I had a conversation this week with a guy. Uh, he told me this himself, that he got into great trouble as a teenage boy right out of college. And he did something. His dad came and picked him up. And he just remembers walking into the house and his mom just being flooded with tears. Dad was angry. I don't know about you, but like I get angry. Jenny sheds tears more than I do. And he all he remembers is the anger of his dad, but what his, that struck a chord in his heart was that his mom just simply could not stop weeping over the pain that he had caused her. You see, that's the great judgment that will come to you, moms. You will feel pain that no one else in the room can feel when your child wanders away. That is from God. You see, that's a relational thing. That's not how God ever intended it to be. God never intended for the heart of a mom to grieve the way it does. So relationally, there was pain when it comes to children. That's the first judgment. The second one is relational as well. It has to do with your marriage. And it has to do with your desire to be over and be the head of your marriage. He says this, that your desire will be shall be contrary to your husband, that you will want to rule over him, but he shall rule over you. I see the great judgment came that God had always planned that man would rule over the wife. We see that in the very beginning. But what happens here is that the woman in that moment of taking that fruit and eating it and giving it to her husband, in that moment, the wife wanted to rule the house. And God says, now it's going to be that way forever. And it's going to be very hard for women to submit to their husband. Again, I taught this when we looked at Ephesians chapter 5. I believe the reason that women struggle with submission to their husband is because the husband is not submitting to God. We'll get to that in a moment. Adam is the problem in this passage, not Eve, when it came to the sin in the garden, though there is judgment to her. The greater judgment comes to Adam. We'll see that in a moment. But now your greatest struggle, struggle woman, will always be to want to rule over the home, and your greatest fear will be in submission to the one God has called you 
to submit to. So your great judgment, ladies, will be in childbearing and ultimately submission. And now men will get to you and to me. God then moves on from Eve and says this to Adam in verse 17. And Adam, and to Adam he said, it's like he waits to the last one to give the blow. Because you have listened, you can circle that word listen in your Bible. The Hebrew word means to obey. It doesn't just mean to hear, but it means to obey to what you're hearing. We could read it this way. Because you have obeyed the voice of your wife and you have eaten the tree which I commanded you not to. You see, he doesn't say the one that I commanded her not to, that I commanded you not to eat. You remember back in Genesis chapter 2 that God spoke directly to Adam. He did not speak to Eve. He spoke to Adam first. And Adam relayed the message to Eve about what they were and were not to do. Because I commanded you. I didn't command her. I commanded you, Adam, not to eat of that tree. You shall now eat of it. Curses the ground because of you. Here's the great judgment to us. The ground is now cursed because Adam ate. Pain shall be eating in all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, and you shall eat the bread till, <clears throat> till you return to the ground. For out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The great judgment comes to eating. The great fall came at the eating. Now the great judgment comes to the eating. God says to Adam, this is true. Now your work, the toil that you have, will be great work. It, it's going to cost you a lot. Now, work itself is not the curse. Like, men, don't, don't wake up thinking, man, I, we gotta go to work because of Adam's stupidity. No, God had told Adam in Genesis 1 and 2, hey, you're gonna need to work the fields. Like, God commanded Adam to work the fields before the fall happened. So the curse is not on the working, the curse is on how we are to work. Now it's gonna be hard work. Before, it was going to be joy and pleasure to go and tend the fields. Now, it's going to be hard work. Thorns and thistles will come about. Pain and struggle and agony are going to come about because of the fall. So work is not the curse, but it's how we are to work. It's no longer a bit joyful and pleasurable. It'll be long and strenuous. And now the final judgment is this. There will be death. Remember what God promised? God promised He said when you eat of it, you will surely what? Die. What did Satan say? God didn't really mean that. So now, death is the other punishment for our sin. Not, not just spiritual punishment, but emotional death happened because of the fall. And God says, you will return from which you came. Dust. There will be death emotionally, spiritually, and ultimately physically for you. Remember what it says in Romans chapter 5. And not just for you, Adam, but for all of mankind. See, death entered the picture through Adam. And all of us in this room, because of Adam's sin, of eating of the fruit, 
We all face death because of Adam. That's our punishment. It says this in Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to what? All men because of sin. Because of Adam, we all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Therefore, we all will die. Now, I don't know about you. I'm just grateful that this passage and this story does not stop here. Because that, that's pretty miserable. The curse to the woman, the curse to the man, there seems to be no hope until God speaks again. Then in verse 20 through 24, it says this, And the man called his wife the name Eve, because she was the mother of all living things, and because the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Then God said, Behold, the man has become like us. Catch that word us. That's the Trinity again. Knowing good from evil. Like the serpent was halfway right. Like, yes, you're going to become like God. He just doesn't give the flip side to the story. Knowing good from evil is not a good thing. Though he says, God himself says, yep, they become kind of like us. Not completely like us. They've become like us. Knowing good from evil. Now at least he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat it and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. And he drove out the man. And at the east of the garden of Eden, God placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way of the tree of life. Now we get from the great curse to the great judgment. But God does not dismiss the trial. God at this point has not raised in the gavel and said the court case is over. But now God has the final say in the ultimate verdict. God gives the great pardon or the great promise. There's three things that God promises at the verdict. Three promises that we see in this text. I'll work backwards and come all the way back to chapter 3, verse 13. The three promises are this. Life, covering, and salvation. The first promise or the first pardon we see is this. Life. We see that God says this. The great promise and God's great love and God's great mercy to us is that God knew that we would be fallen and that God knew that we would live in sinfulness and that God knew that ultimate sin would reign always in us. But God said this, He said they know good from evil and they now have the curse of sin on them. And He makes this promise to them by driving them out of the garden. Now we may think that's not good, that God would drive out Adam and Eve from the garden, but God in His gracious and kindness to Adam and Eve drove them out because God did not want them to do what? Eat of the tree of life. God did not want man to sit in His eternal fallenness for all of eternity. So it's God's goodness that He drove us out of the garden and told us not to eat of the tree of life. Could you imagine living in this body forever and ever and ever and ever? Could you imagine that? But that's what would have happened if Adam had stayed in the garden and God had not made provision to protect man from himself and taken and eaten. He would have eaten from that tree as well. But God in His goodness and His great pardon 
drove them out of paradise. Though paradise was lost, there was a promise that came with the loss that we wouldn't have to live totally corrupt forever and ever and ever. I thank God for that. Thank God that Adam did not eat of that tree because evil would have been pervasive always. Could you imagine Hitler living forever? Mussolini living forever? Herod living forever? Jeffrey Dahmer living forever? Just think about the amount of wickedness those men caused in a short amount of time. They would have continued that wickedness if they had lived on, but it's God's great promise that God put a cherubim in front of the tree and said, no, no, don't eat of that. I'm going to rescue you from yourself so that you won't have to live this way. He saved them from a life of their fallen condition forever. Not only that, that He saved them from their life, but God also made the great promise through Eve that now Eve would become the mother of all living things. Like God promised that life would continue, though there'd be fallenness, that life would go on and on and on. Thank God for that. We're here because of the promise of God to Eve. We have life because of that promise to Eve. The next thing it says is this. God made a covering for them. It says this in verse 21. And the Lord God made for Adam and Eve His wife garments of skin and clothing. It's God who always brings covering to our sin and our shame. Remember what had happened right after the fall. Who tried to cover themselves from their sin and their shame? Adam and Eve. They took some fig leaves off a tree and put it on them and hid from God. And now in God's goodness and His kindness and His pardon to them, said, hey, I'm going to do for you what you cannot do for yourself. You cannot remove your sin and shame for your life, but I can. And then we see the first sacrifice that was ever made in the garden. That God killed an animal. That would have been unthinkable to Adam and Eve. It would have been unthinkable to Adam and Eve to take a life for their sake. But God in His goodness and His kindness clothed them with what? The blood of an animal to take away their sin from them and their covering of their sin and shame. That's a marker and a reminder of what Christ is go- God is going to do through Christ in us. We see the first sacrifice. So God is already painting the picture of His great salvation, which is the next thing. We'll go back to verse 15. God's great promise or God's great pardon really happens in verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between her offspring and your offspring. He shall bruise your head or he shall crush your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is the first time that we see Jesus Christ and what he is going to do. We see the first gospel message all the way back in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15. Here's what else we see that is true. There's this word that we don't like to use very often. But it's throughout the Bible. It's called predestination. Thank God for predestination. 
God predetermined how He was going to rescue us. If you say you do not believe in predestination, I would offer you and submit to you predestination happened in Genesis chapter 3. It does not happen in Romans chapter 8. It starts in Genesis chapter 3. God predestined how He was going to save His elect here in this passage. There is such thing as predestination. I know it's, it's a long curse word in the church, but God predestined how He was going to rescue the world. He had a plan even before the fall. He predestined in His great goodness salvation. And how and what was His predetermining act to save us? He says it this way. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between her offspring. Look at the word offspring. That is singular. That is not plural. What He is saying that Eve will produce all the way 4,000 years from that moment that there will be the offspring that will come. That offspring is Jesus Christ. He is a person, a living being that was given to us and promised to us by God in Genesis chapter 3. And here's the promise that was going to take place of the great salvation. It says this, that He will crush the head of the serpent. That Christ will ultimately have the ultimate victory over the serpent. He will kill. He will defeat Satan. But here's what else the promise of this passage says. That will come at a great cost. See, it doesn't just say that he'll crush the head of the serpent. It says that the serpent will bruise his heel. Now what does that mean? That the Christ that would come and crush the serpent would have to be bruised for us. Isaiah chapter 53 says it this. He was bruised for our iniquities. That's what the cross shows us. is the fulfillment of this predetermined promise that Satan would be crushed, but it would cost Christ His life. Turn with me for a moment to Galatians chapter 3. This is what Paul says about this moment. Galatians chapter 3, verse 16. Now the promises were made to Adam and to his offspring. It does not say, and to the offsprings referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring who is Christ. Christ is the offspring are the offspring that God has promised in Genesis chapter 3. I want you to go to John 3.16. A very famous passage. All of us could probably stand up and quote this passage. John 3.16 says this, For God so loved the world, that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And we know that passage well. 
But without looking in your Bibles, do you know what chapter 3.15 says? Chapter 3.15 says this. Now, I want you to see the irony in this passage in light of what we've been reading in Genesis chapter 3 this morning. In Genesis chapter 14 and 15, and John chapter 3, 14 and 15, it says this. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him would have eternal life, for God so loved the world. Now that story comes out of Numbers chapter 21. Numbers chapter 21 is this. That what has happened was that God sent uh, serpents to the wilderness to kill off His people. They had sinned greatly. But then God in His wisdom and His providence is going to use a serpent to bring redemption. And He tells Moses, hey, I want you to now to take one of those serpents, I want you to tie it around the pole, and I want you to lift it up. That every time that someone has been bitten by this serpent, if they'll just turn and, and relent from what they've done and look at the serpent, they will be saved or they will be healed. Now what's the thing that the serpent did in Genesis chapter 3? It's what killed us. But now in God's goodness, He takes a servant in Numbers chapter 21 to redeem us. And then ultimately He uses that example in John 3.16 to say the Son of Man must be lifted up like the serpent in Numbers chapter 21 to bring redemption to all things. So God will ultimately use a serpent as a picture to bring redemption. So he takes what a serpent has done, pushes us forward to Moses in Numbers 21 to say, hey, have you looked at what brought death? I'm the one that actually brings life, and I'll bring life through a serpent, but it's as a foreshadow what Christ is going to ultimately have to do to bring life to all of us. You see, the great promise is this salvation will come from the Son of Man, be lifted up like a serpent in the wilderness. But we must turn, every one of us, and look at the cursed one that's on a tree. Remember, the serpent was cursed. Fast forward to the New Testament. Christ was cursed on the tree. Now I want to finish with Luke chapter 24. I wonder if this is what Jesus did. Remember, right after His resurrection, two people, Cleopas and No Name, are leaving Jerusalem. They're on the road to Emmaus. They had heard of the promises of God throughout the Old Testament. They had known that a Messiah was coming, that there, there was a promise that at Genesis 3 was made, that the offspring of Eve would bring salvation to His people. And they had put their hope in Jesus being that person. And then all of a sudden, Jesus is dead and in a tomb. But much to their surprisement, they're walking and talking about what had happened on the road to Emmaus. And so Jesus shows up in their midst and asks them in verse 19, well, what are you talking about? And they begin to talk to Jesus about what had happened. And they say, are you the only one that doesn't know what has happened? That Jesus, the Nazarene, the man, the prophet, the mighty indeed, word before God and all the people, 
how our chief priests and rulers deceived and delivered him up to be condemned to death, to be judged, to be crucified, to die. But we had put our what? Our hope that he would be the one to redeem us. So they continue to talk. And then Jesus says this. Oh, you foolish ones in verse 25. Slow of heart to believe all the prophets had spoken. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And then it says in verse 27, and beginning with who? Moses. I believe that this is the first story in Genesis 3 that Jesus shared with those two men walking to a man. Hey, remember what Genesis 3 said? That, that I would be the offspring of Eve and that I would crush Satan and I would be bruised. That's what the cross, that's what just happened a few hours ago. I was crushed, but I'm not defeated. I'm the one that defeated the one that thought he had won the victory. No, victory is mine. And on and on he goes. I wonder how long it took him to get to Numbers chapter 21 in this. You remember that story about Moses lifting up a serpent in the wilderness and anyone who would look to that serpent would be saved? I'm the one that's been lifted up on a cross. Look to me and you will be saved. And on and on he goes. You see, the verdict is this. Yes, church. There is the great curse. There is the great judgment. All of us, it says this. The verdict is this. For the wages of sin is death. That is true for every single one of us in this room. But it doesn't stop with that being the only part of the verdict. Like if all God would say to us, for the wages of sin is death. The free gift of God is what? Eternal life for all those who would trust in Christ Jesus. That is the great promise. Even at the fall in Genesis 3, even in the curses, we see the great blessing. Do you believe today that Christ has come to give you life and life to the full? Do you believe today that Christ is the one that will cover your guilt and your shame? And do you believe that Christ and Christ alone is your salvation? If you do not know Christ, the man, not the myth, not the legend, Christ, the man, that has come, that was the offspring of Eve, to give you hope and freedom and redemption, there is no greater time than to be like those people, the Israelites, in the wilderness, when they got bit, to turn and jump and look at the serpent that was raised on a pole. That is the picture that Christ was raised on a cross, but more importantly, raised from death. Do you know that Christ has been offered to us at the great verdict in Genesis chapter 3? Have you placed your hope and faith and trust in that offering? Let us go to the Lord and